0: Welcome to Business Spotlight on Money Radio WPSE. Business Spotlight is her weekly at this time on 1450 AM and 107.1 FM. Today, Dr. Ralph Ford, Chancellor at Penn State Barron, brings you another episode of Barron Talks. Welcome to Barron Talks. I'm Chancellor Ralph Ford, and on Barron Talks we have discussions with people in our Penn State Barron community. Today, I am very pleased to have with us Dr. Pam Silver. Pam is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs here at Barrent. Welcome here, Pam.
1: Thanks for having me, Ralph.
0: Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about your bio first, a little bit more about your background, and then we'll start into our discussion. Okay. You hold the rank of Professor of Biology you have your PhD in biology and a master's in botany from the University of South Florida and a bachelor's in biology from Trenton State College, which I believe now has a, a whole new name. They don't, doesn't exist under that name anymore. Uh, it's Rowan, is that correct? No, it's the yeah. College of New Jersey now. Ah, it's the College of New Jersey. Uh, either way, you came to Barron in 1993 after teaching for two years at the University of South Florida. Your research focuses on the ecology of lake streams and wetlands and the study of aquatic insects. You have a very distinguished academic record. For 13 years, you served as the editor-in-chief of Freshwater Science, a peer-reviewed journal. So again, welcome here. Thanks. I'd like to start out and just, you know, tell us a bit about your pathway here to Barron. How did you end up here at uh, Penn State Erie, the Barron College, back in 1993?
1: That was a pretty convoluted path. Um, I guess once I, I finished my, my PhD, my husband said, we're going to move. Um, and I want to move north and Barren offered me a job. So that part of the path was straightforward, but the part getting to the PhD was, was a little twisted. When I graduated with, with my bachelor's degree, um, I found that I was either underqualified or overqualified for every job I applied for. So my mom said, you want to be a med tech? I said, what's a med tech? Medical technologist. Um, so I went to school for a year to become a medical technologist, moved to Florida, um, went to school for another year um, to get my specialist in blood banking. And then I worked in a major hospital in Orlando for 10 years as a blood banker and had my two babies and decided that I'd had enough of blood banking. We were moving to Tampa. So I applied to the University of South Florida and spent seven years there, getting first my masters and then my PhD.
0: That's a that's a brave decision, I would say, after ten years out there. Were you were you uh afraid when you went back for your PhD and you ended up in the university? What was that process like?
1: Um well, I went from having a steady income to having none. <laughs> so that part was hard, and I had a three-and-a-half-year-old son, and I had an eight-week-old son. Um, and everybody was 10 years younger than I was. That actually turned out to be an advantage because my life was relatively settled. I wasn't worried about who I was. I just was back in school. and. The best part, the absolute best part of being back in school was that I was finally with a group of people who were truly interested in the same kind of pursuits that I was interested in. And I didn't have to, I didn't have to pretend to be anything other than who I was. And that that was a very, um, freeing experience.
0: So when was it, I mean, was it that you always knew that you wanted to study biology, environment, ecology? Was this something as a youngster you knew or you just grew into it?
1: So it's something I knew as a kid. Um, It sort of started when I was little. My dad would take the family on Sunday morning excursions in the woods. And he took us orienteering and we did all that kind of stuff. And I really liked being outdoors. Um, when when I was in high school, um, a man came to my school. He worked at a local watershed association. And it was a career day. And he was talking about careers in, in freshwater science. And he, he happened to be a person who studied algae. And it was so cool. I mean, it was just like, oh, man, I want to do that. So the, the good outcome for me was that I worked with that man for three years while I was in high school um, and did a lot of outdoor education and workshops. So when I went to college, oh, I was going to do outdoor education. Um, I just found out when I graduated that I wasn't quite where I needed to be to do that. Um, and I got married right after graduation, so it was pretty urgent that I get a career.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, that, that pathway in biology, the, the thing that strikes me is there are so many ways, so many different things you can do in quote, quote unquote biology from DNA, uh, geneticists to, you know, working in, in ecology like you have and, and looking at the environment, environmental science. And you've been a faculty member in our biology program for many years. So, you know, what, what's your advice for somebody who's thinking about studying biology as they're, they're, uh, for a four-year degree? And what, what should they be thinking about? And what are the opportunities after they graduate?
1: You're right. Biology exists along a huge continuum from the very smallest of the small things, the, the molecules and the cells, all the way up to the entire Earth. And it won't be too long before that includes the, the entire solar system, I think. Um, so one of the things that I see a lot in students who come interested in biology is they don't have the preparation in math that they need. Students don't realize that many aspects of biology are very mathematical. Many of them want to go into careers in the health professions. They want to be doctors or they want to be physician's assistants or dentists or veterinarians. And if they're going to do that, then they need to take a huge spectrum of courses all across that biological continuum. Um, The other field that's really growing fast now is the molecular and the cellular biology. Um, That's sort of very focused at one end of the continuum but I think in many ways, you can't study that end of the spectrum exclusively without appreciation for the other end. Because for example, let's suppose you decide to be a virologist, or if you decide to study women's health issues like we are doing currently at Behrend, you may be working on a very small scale, but the organisms you're working with, women or, or humans, or any other organism exists in a population and populations exist in communities and communities mm-hmm. exist in ecosystems. And even if that ecosystem is the small as one cell, right, yep. you need to understand the, those scaling factors to be able to appreciate the patterns. What you see in a biological system depends entirely on the scale that you're examining, and patterns change. What you think is the truth at that very smallest scale may turn out to be a very different picture when you look at higher level scales because of the fact that everything intersects with everything else in in an ecosystem. So my advice to most biology students is, Pay attention to those things. When you take a course, that freshman course in ecology, that's not a waste of your time if you are interested in molecular biology. That's an important piece of the perspective that you need to be a successful biologist.
0: You know, this is one of the things we see in our students regardless of field. They they self-select early sometimes in thinking what they do and don't need to know. And knowledge for knowledge's sake matters a lot. But you never know when you're going to use that and and come in when it will play into some other problem you're looking at.
1: Right. So one example, actually, I'm a good example of that. My my biology degree is a BA. It's not a BS. So I ended up taking enough credits to get minors in psychology, in um, literature and in in social sciences. I don't have expertise in any of those areas, but what that allowed me to do was to fit what I was doing as a biologist into a bigger picture.
0: You know, one of the things I don't want to get, want to get too uh, technical, but that I always appreciated <clears throat> from the engineering mathematical side is that I, I used to do a lot of work in simulation as well, but even just using differential equations to do some of the basic population dynamics modeling and how populations grow and shrink and become, you know, oversaturated or they start to use too many resources, but the math gets pretty complicated very quickly. Um, yes, it does. Not to people away, but in an interesting way too.
1: Yeah. So, so my mom is a mathematician and my dad is a, is a social scientist, and so I think that just gave me the right environment to to appreciate all those those connections and when i started studying ecology my mom and i had endless conversations about mathematical models of population dynamics and it it was actually really cool to be able to connect with her on a professional level that
0: way that is interesting conversation around the dinner table it doesn't happen everywhere (laughs) yeah it's true (laughs) well let's uh fast forward now so as we said, you been a, you were a biology faculty for many years, but in 2017, you took on the role of interim associate dean for academic affairs and then uh, formally took the position or took it on a longer-term basis in 2019. You spend less time now in the classroom, although you still spend some time, like many of the administrators here do. So what do you find rewarding about the new role?
1: About the ADAA role? Yes. 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 Um, I like solving other people's problems or helping them to solve their own problems. And I would say that at least half of what I do is working with individuals, both faculty and students and staff, to address those problems, figure out solutions, um, figure out ways to take a win from a situation that doesn't look like it's going to, to end well that's probably the most rewarding. It's the, that people part. Um, The piece about being the associate Dean that I missed the most is that experience in the classroom. Cause I was one of those teachers that could just walk in and like everything in the rest of the world fell off the face of the planet. And all it Mm -hmm. was, was me and the students. And, and I could read every single one of them and I missed that, that, bonding, I guess, that comes from teaching um, in front of a class.
0: Oh, it is extremely rewarding. But let's stick with the point of helping people solve problems in your role as uh, associate dean. Uh, this last year, we had the biggest challenge, the, the challenge of a lifetime, we all know, is the thing called the global pandemic. And uh, we had to reinvent everything here, the way we teach, conduct research, the way we support our students. Can you talk, talk us through that transition? How did our faculty make it through that rapid transition? Which was, you know, to put a historical marker in it. Uh, it's March 5th right now, and we were just about ready to start that. We didn't really know on this day last year, but we knew things were getting a little bit crazy. And within uh, two weeks, we would be going quote remote. Well, from, from the
1: faculty perspective, I think it was within about three days we're going to be going remote, and that transition was extremely, extremely hard. Um, We basically had three days to move our faculty out of their offices and classrooms and into their homes, set up their homes to teach. That meant that we had to make sure that they had the technology that they needed and the internet access they needed. In those three days, faculty members had to completely reinvent how they taught. They they had to learn at least new teaching tools to let them connect with their students by Zoom. Plus, they had a new skill set because connecting with students by Zoom is a completely different experience than reading the room the way most of us do. So they were using new technology and new tools and new skill sets. They couldn't see their students. They were stressed out. There were upset students and upset parents. Their children were home from school because most of our faculty Mm -hmm. or many of our faculty members are young. There wasn't any of that casual conversation with students that you used to have before and after class. And so we had a very distressed faculty and a very distressed student body. After a, a couple of weeks, everybody sort of adjusted, but then the, that long-term reality set in. Um, what was good about that experience is that the university rallied around the faculty and rallied around the students in a big way. Um, our um, information technology staff were the heroes of the day for a long, long time our um, instructional designers have been working nonstop to develop webinars and webinets and seminars and and modules for teaching in Canvas, which is our online um, course delivery system. They've helped faculty members transition courses from online to being held via Zoom, to being held in, in all kinds of mixed modalities. Um, The staff have been heroes because all of those changes required the staff, our registrar's office, our admissions office, our advising office, to completely change everything that they do. And all of this was happening in an environment where we couldn't see each other's faces. So I guess the thing about it that struck me was how people supported each other.
0: Mhm. It's uh, it's just been an incredibly difficult time for everybody. But there were some advantages we had as as an institution. And uh, it, I still, it amazes me. I, I said, you know, we knew it was coming, but it was so hard to prepare for. It. But when we made the decision, we literally only had three days. Right. And this institution, as large as it is, actually managed that, which is, to me, phenomenal. But let's talk a little bit about the infrastructure. I, I hate to go there, but we have that world campus and we have a great IT infrastructure. So I think it's worth just describing what the world campus is and how that helped us prepare in some manner for what what came what happened.
1: So the world campus is an online course and program delivery mode. Um, that. Particular part of Penn State has an international reputation for extreme excellence. They they set the, the gold standard really for teaching in in an online environment. And Barnd is fortunate in that we have several programs that are delivered through that environment. So we had faculty here and instructional designers here who had that online experience and. And those faculty members and those instructional designers really stepped up to help everybody else get through that instructional transition. The other thing that having World Campus meant was that we had expertise at the university level in how to do online instruction. So there was significant leadership that that. that had always existed in the university but that we didn't necessarily see at Barron because before the pandemic we were able to sort of operate within our own ecosystem Mm -hmm. so what the pandemic has done is forced the entire university to operate as a really big ecosystem Um, and it's exposed places where we have expertise that could be shared that we didn't realize, right? The expertise existed somewhere that we didn't know it it was there. And so what that meant was that when the university rallied around the faculty and the students, um, all of that expertise was became available for for anyone in the university to use. Um, and I don't think we could have done that without World Campus to lead us through the, the initial phases of that.
0: Yeah, it really, it proved, uh, it proved invaluable. But even so, you know, I wanted to get to a particular thing that I think everyone has struggled with across the country, but our faculty maybe have developed some interesting ways to address. This. And that's, the, you know, in a traditional classroom, you get to see somebody's face, their expression. Now they're looking at this checkerboard square of sometimes 100 students or even 10. You know, we all struggle with that. So how do they accommodate for for understanding how the students are reacting to what they're saying, that human touch that's lost through the screen? Because they've come up with ways to do it, I believe.
1: They have. Um, and you're right. That That is the number one thing I hear from faculty members is I can't see my students' faces. I can't read the room. I can't chat with them casually because when you're on Zoom, everything you say is public. So there are a number of strategies. Some faculty members have told me that they got they were better at engaging students by Zoom than they were in person, Um, and it's prob that's probably a function of their personalities and teaching styles. But other faculty members have told me that it's really hard for them. So the key is touches. You can't necessarily see your student, but you can reach out to them in multiple ways. Emails, um, breakout rooms in Zoom, um, through social media. Many of our faculty use social media and cell phones to talk to students. Um, it's It's a matter of paying attention to all of the other cues that you always have as a teacher. You can look at a student's grades, you can look at their assignments, you can read a lot from what a student writes on an exam even. And faculty members have learned to be attuned to all of those other ways of touching students that they didn't necessarily have to exploit before. Mm -hmm. So faculty members are really smart people. When they can't get to something one way, they they get to it another way. Um, And so there's been a lot of transitioning and acquiring of new tools and of just paying attention to everything that's happening with your students. So one example is a tool that's been developed to monitor how frequently a student uh, checks into the course management system. Um, are they clicking are they are they using their mouse in there and navigating around? and we can tell when a student is way behind in clicks, if you will they're yep. they're not doing what they need to do. We can tell when when they're doing what they need to do, but they're not succeeding, so that tells us a different thing than just not participating. Then we have our entire advising infrastructure. Um, We have several very large pieces of software that help us follow students that way. And we developed a pipeline. So when a faculty member notices that a student appears to be struggling, we now have something that we call the CARES team, which can help that st- basically wrap itself around the student, identify the problem. Mm-hmm. Is this um, a mental health problem? Is this um, a physical problem? Is this an academic problem? And who needs to be on board helping that student right now? So all of those things together have actually provided a pretty robust safety net for students and had the additional benefit of helping faculty members understand different ways that they can monitor their students' success than just reading them in the classroom.
0: Yeah, I think it's the, the uh, you, you talked about a lot there, but I think one thing we can be very proud about is that CARES team that you put together. It's reached out to help students in so many situations. Uh, and to your point when we started, It's helping people solve problems through this pandemic. You you know, one thing I wanted to ask you to talk about as well is you oversee an area called the Center for Teaching and e-learning initiatives, and we've got a great team here on campus that just helps faculty teach, generally speaking, improve their teaching. But they've been really, uh, really active and busy throughout this time.
1: They've been super active. I I do want to say that I can't take complete credit for that CARES team um, there was a whole team of people, ACPC and Student Affairs and Residence Life. Everybody pulled together on that one. Yeah.
0: Excellent that's, point, and, and fully, fully noted that we, it, it takes a village and a team. But uh, let's say that you've been very passionate about it and that's, as many that's have. True. Yeah.
1: So um, I'm sorry. What was what was I supposed that's to? Center to for
0: Teaching and Center for Teaching and E-Learning Initiative that you oversee. It's a great team over there that help our faculty on a day-to-day basis improve their teaching, but have been ever so important during this pandemic?
1: So what happened um, during the as a result of the pandemic is that our, our CTEI team, both the in the classroom ped- pedagogy faculty development team as well as the instructional designers um, formed this giant safety net that spanned across the entire university. Um, Our members were very active um, at the university level. And and they just, if a faculty member said they needed a tool to be able to do X, that team was right there helping them with it. They developed um, web pages called Keep Teaching, and there were um, web pages that, from the student's perspective, keep learning, that had all of the resources that people could amass um, available. And then they taught pe- the faculty how to use those resources. Um, they've been on call, I think, probably 24-7 now for for a year. Um, and they've created a wonderful community that is still working, um, mm-hmm. even though, Now we've kind of figured things out. They're still out there providing support and and more tools.
0: Well, as I said earlier, you know we are recording this on uh, March 5th, 2021. The world is uh, still, you know, we still have this very significant pandemic going on. But case drops, uh, case counts, new cases each day are dropping. But we've also got this wonderful thing called the vaccine that is a product of your field of biology as well, which is a, a modern marvel. It is a it is a true wonder what we've been able to do. But all of that being said, this gives us hope towards the future. So now as we're looking, uh, things are starting to feel a little bit different. And for the summer, we're planning a transition. And then for this fall, we're looking and, you know, we announced uh, last week we're going to come back and uh teach in the traditional way. So what does this next transition mean for us?
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure it's a relief.
0: I don't ask easy questions.
1: <laughs> no, you don't. So so the first thing I would say is I'm sure it is a relief to almost everybody, although there are still many faculty members who are very concerned about about health issues and 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 worried, you know, about will everybody have that vaccine? But that said, um, I think that there's going to be a relaxation. It's much, much easier to teach in person, and it's much, much easier to learn in person. So that piece comes with a great relief. The other piece, however, and, and I think going, returning to that in-person environment will help it, is that we are going to be seeing students coming in as freshmen who have really had a major disruption in their high school education. And 10 years from now, we'll be getting students who have had a major disruption in the foundational parts Mm -hmm. of their education, their elementary school education. So one of the things that um i think we're going to have to address is how do we prepare because the deficiencies or the uh, deficiencies i guess is the right word the delays in learning those things are going to be different depending on when where the student was in their education so one of the things we're going to have to recognize this fall is that students are going to be coming to us with um, a little bit better than half of their high school education intact. And we need to think about what are they going to need? How are we going to support Mm -hmm. them? So we have two summer programs that we use to do that. Um, One of those is currently called SEDS-WISE, and that's for high school juniors. Um, That's sort of a Get a glimpse of what college will be like and get used to a college environment. Program.
0: Wise is women in science and engineering. Is that You uh, right. Use the acronym. I just want to help spell yeah. it out. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, the other program is called PASS, which is Pathway to Success Summer Start. That's a pro a bridging program for students um, who are about to enter Penn State in the fall. And so we've we've bulked that up. We've put in um, as, as many supporting activities as we can think of. We've thought about what do these students need to be successful that maybe they didn't get in their last year and a half of high school. And we're also thinking a lot about how to continue to support those students during their freshman year. So we've got all kinds of of technological, even artificial intelligence monitoring systems to track students' learning behaviors and help us guide them in a a way that will make them more effective learners.
0: Yeah, it's really, you know, you point out there's a lot of work we're going to have to do, but we can do it. And we've got some programs here to help at Barron, just like you said. So everyone who has a question, I'm sure they can reach out to you directly or they can call us here at Barron. We're, we're coming though to the end of our time and it's been a fascinating discussion and you and I could talk about this for hours and it's really, it's really quite important. But I'm going to give you the last word. Is there anything you'd like to add for our listening audience that you think they ought to know?
1: Wow. I, I think you should be really proud. Of our, of our teaching professionals. And I include in that um, all, of the, all of the staff that supports those teaching professionals. I think parents should be really proud of what their students have done this year. It has been extremely challenging for them on multiple, multiple levels. Um, I'm sure they've learned a lot about resilience and persistence Um, I know that our faculty members have, and I know that our staff have. Um, So I'm very excited about getting back to the new normal. It won't be the same as the old normal, but it certainly will involve that personal touch that all of us desperately need to succeed.
0: Very well said. Very eloquent and uh, excellent points. I can't add anything to that other than to say, Thank you. It has been a pleasure uh, to uh, have this discussion with you. Uh, Again, this is Baron Talks. I'm Chancellor Ralph Ford. My guest today has been Dr. Pam Silver, our Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Biology. Thank you, Pam.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Business Spotlight on Money Radio WPSC. Join us again on Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. for an encore presentation of Barron Talks with Dr. Ralph Ford, Chancellor of Penn State Barron.